Hello, and welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. I've said before on this show that while the stories we tell about history can be flawed and distorted, objects don't lie. But objects can be misunderstood. What a piece was used for, where it came from, who it belonged to, and who made it is all subject to everything from outright deception to misinterpretations and mistaken assumptions. Now, as we publish this episode, there's an exhibition at the New York Historical Society on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which is about perhaps the most extraordinary case of mistaken identity in the history of American decorative arts. Uh, The show is called Crafting Freedom, The Life and Legacy of Free Black Potter, Thomas W. Kamara, and it runs through May 28th. For most of the 200 years since his death, Kamara was thought to be a Frenchman, uh, making pottery out of his business here in New York City in the early 19th century. It wasn't until 2010 that the world learned that he wasn't French after all. In fact, Kamara wasn't even white. He was a free black man, applying his trade in spite of the tremendous adversity is facing black craftspeople at the time. And he was much more than just a craftsperson. Kamara was politically active and even traveled to Africa, um, all of which we're going to explore today. And I'm thrilled to be able to talk about Kamara and about this exhibition with someone you've heard on Curious Objects before, Alison Robinson. Back in 2021, she came on to talk with me about her work on children's dolls produced by the WPA, which is still one of my favorite episodes. So, Allison, I couldn't be happier to have you back. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. I'm so excited to talk about Thomas Kamara and about the show Crafting Freedom. Excellent. Me too. So, yeah, there were, I just want to start by saying there were a lot of potters in 19th century New York City. Um, but, you know, Kamara was a noted maker even before we knew about his African descent. Um, what is it that sets his work apart? Kamara is a special stoneware potter in the late 1790s and early 1800s because he's using traditional Germanic techniques to make his stoneware, but decorating them in a way that draws directly from neoclassical and federal high style American decorative arts. So we see in the span of his works that he's making jars and jugs that have a very practical purpose. They're stoneware, so they're fired at a very high temperature. They have this beautiful salt glaze that gives it that really delightful orange peel texture to it. And we say in the show and in our tours that These objects, they're utilitarian, they're kind of akin to the Tupperware of the period. But to set himself apart from his competitors, Kamara is using the swags and the tassels that you would have seen in furniture, in architecture at the turn of the American Revolution to make himself distinct in a field that's largely decorated using floral motifs that are more popular and common in stoneware in this period. I love the Tupperware uh, comparison. I mean, what kinds of objects was he making? What forms uh, was he was he putting out? This is, in truth, a little bit of the mystery of Thomas Kamara 
of course, we only have the ones that have survived up until this point. But of what has survived, we do know that he was making spectacularly large vessels, which would have been used to hold foods in bulk, such as grains or large amounts of liquids, such as beer and cider. We know from surviving documents that in order to compete in this market, he would have also made much smaller jars, maybe even inkwells. And one of my favorite forms in the show are these set of three oyster jars. Kamara, he had a number of motifs that he used to set himself apart in this field, up to including putting his name and location onto his vessels. It's really special to see how he's using these same marketing techniques of putting a Black entrepreneur's name and where the customer can find them right on the front of the jar. And so he's making these cylindrical jars um, that are, they're, they're not too big, but they're hollow on the inside, of course. They're designed essentially to hold oysters that have been pickled, sealed on the top, and piled together in shipping containers to be sent, now we know, as close as New York City and as far as Europe and South America. And so he's taking, again, these very practical jars, but reimagining how they can be decorated to support the Black entrepreneurial community, and in this case, Black oystermen. So you've told us about at least one use that these pieces were being put to, but um, who were his customers? I mean, who was he selling to and, and what were they doing with these vessels? He would have had a real range of customers. More likely than not, he would have sold them wholesale to a third party. But these customers would have really run the gamut from individuals using them from storage for storage in their own homes to boarding houses and restaurants. We actually have, I'm so excited to share this, we have a shard of Comra stoneware that was found in an archaeological dig in Lower Manhattan. And documentary research on this site in Pearl Street later revealed that it was in fact a boarding house that was operated by two women who were both active at the same time where Kamra was running his business between 1799 and 1820. So Kamra is really, has his fingers in many different areas of the New York entrepreneurial world, of domestic spaces in New York, and really changing the game, so to speak, in terms of how people are decorating their stoneware in all of these spaces. That's so interesting to be able to draw a direct connection based on a shard between his workshop and a place where it was actually in, in use. Um, so speaking of geography, um, wh where was Kamra's shop located? This is another way in which Kamra really set himself apart from all of his competitors. The New York stoneware industry, for the most part, was based in Lower Manhattan in a site called Pot Baker's Hill. It's around where City Hall is today. We know from documentary evidence, starting with 
directory records in 1795 that this is in fact where Kamara is getting his start. He lives nearby. He must be working at Pop Baker's Hill as a potter in this period. In 1797, he does something so bold that I would highly encourage everyone to look at a map of this afterwards. He moves all the way to the Lower East Side and starts his own business in Corlear's Hook. This new location was one that was uh, kind of picturesque when you look at paintings of the 1790s. It was uh, more bucolic, certainly, than people really imagine it to be. But he would have been close to docks and shipping, which would have made it easier, perhaps, to uh, transport his wares or bring in clays from New Jersey. Moving so far away would have also been a really interesting opportunity for a free Black man who's married at this point to bring and raise his family. And it's also so striking because we know by 1799, he's actually being taxed on his business and his stoneware manufactory in this area. So not only has he physically distanced himself from his competitors, he's really one of the first people to help turn Corlier's hook into what would later become a real hotbed of entrepreneurial action. So what did that shop actually look like? I mean, what sorts of equipment was he using? Was was he also living in the same location? He would have been living in the same location. And we have little clues of what the shop would have looked like left behind both by Kamara himself and from artistic renderings of what potter shops looked like at the time period. In Crafting Freedom, we have this really striking engraving that's all the way in the back of the gallery showing how a potter shop, a small scale one, would have been organized in the time period. You see a man standing at um, a, a wheel turning a pot. And in the back left corner of this image, we see a kiln. Now, because of the documentary evidence, we do know that Kamara would have owned and operated his own kiln at the same time, which is owning your own business is uh, an accomplishment for anyone in this period, even more so for an African-American entrepreneur who would have had to jump over additional hurdles to accomplish this. So we know there would have been a pottery with a kiln attached. There would have been a wheel. Kamara, if you look closely at his jars, you'll notice that the early ones are incised by hand, but later ones with the swags and the tassels are actually stamped. So there would have been a collection of decorative stamps with his signature motifs, his the name of his business, Kamara Stoneware, and the location, Corlier's Hook. Finally, the number of people who would have worked for him is a little bit of a mystery, but there is one clue that we put right at the front of the gallery. The 1800 census that Brant Sipp found also lists seven people in Kamara's household that he's not related to. And so we believe that these individuals might have been there helping him run his business and performing labor from perhaps turning pots all the way to decorating them with stamps or applying the cobalt blue. 
So we're going to get back to that uh, census record a little bit later, but that's so interesting that, I mean, it's painting a picture of really what sounds like quite a bustling location. Um, I mean, this is not the Lower East Side of the early 20th century, of course, but uh, you you talked about his entrepreneurial instincts and starting to... uh, to convert this neighborhood into a commercial and industrial center. Um, you've described how his pots in, in some ways were unique and, and uh, distinguished themselves from pots being produced by other makers of the time. But uh, how else might his business have, been, have looked different or, or acted differently from some of the other potters of, of the period in New York, uh, particularly his white competitors? This is a really wonderful question and one that leads in really beautifully to Kamra's both past and his political work as well. At least two of Kamra's competitors, both multi-generational stoneware families who were in the business before he joined and were able to survive the War of 1812 afterwards, which was economically devastating for a lot of people, including Kamara. A number of these competitors also used enslaved labor to produce these wares and particularly to produce them in volume. And there's no evidence that Kamara, a formerly enslaved man himself, also used enslaved labor. So that is, again, one way that he's really setting himself apart in this industry. And just to be clear, I mean, we know that uh, other Black craftspeople certainly did use um, slave labor uh, in workshops across the United States. So uh, if Kamara didn't, uh, it wasn't just because of the color of his skin. Um, it must have had something to do with his uh, the way he wanted to operate his business. Exactly. He was active in a lot of political conversations for the free black community in that time period he was a participant a really prominent participant i should add in an 1809 celebration of the end of american participation in the international slave trade he sang twice and led two hymns and so we know again from these little pieces of documentary evidence that he's active in uh, anti-slavery conversations. He's not using slave labor in his business. And it really shows how multidimensional his life was and how this particular position was one that he practiced in all aspects of his life. So the exhibition at New York Historical Society includes 22 of Kamra's pots. Um, how many surviving pots are there that we know of? And, and where have those mostly been discovered? We estimate that we've identified, I should say, at least 60 in public collections across the country. But we estimate once you factor in private collections in particular, that it's easily, easily over 100, which is so exciting to think about just the number of vessels that have kind of reunited and come together as a family in the show right now. The surviving vessels, they are as close as New York City, New York State. We found them as far as the Midwest. We have 
examples from the chipstone in the show. And we even found one at the Henry Ford. Actually, the Ford has three. Um, And so they're really spread out to an extent, but it shows you that even before people knew that he was Black, there was recognition in museums all across the country that this work was important. Do you think there are more comrade pots out there waiting to be discovered? I do. Please let me know if you you (laughs) identify some. I always love seeing new comrade pots because there's just, they're so uh, distinct and they each have such an interesting story. I love, I love learning about new pots. What should listeners be looking for if they're rooting around in flea markets uh, and think they might have come across a camera pot? Great question. There are a handful of trademarks that are really easy to spot once you know the details. His signature, Kamra's Stoneware, his, he puts it, the name of his business on it. Of note, the S in Kamra's is backwards, the N in Stoneware is backwards, and the A has this really delightful bent crossbar that stands out so much in this larger field of stoneware. And he's almost always using swags and tassels, but of note, occasionally does this really rich hand incised floral motif that was common in the period. And in at least two examples in the show would have used a compass to create a half circle. You can see the little pinprick right in the middle of it. So there's a real range of decorations, but Kamara's stoneware, Corlier's hook, with or without two E's, all great clues. All right. Eyes open. Um, Tell me about the pots that are included in the exhibition. Is there an example or two that are particularly notable that you'd like to tell us about? Of course. I would love to highlight two examples from the New York Historical Society collection, because they are two of my favorites. One is, oh man, this is hard. I have to highlight three of them. One, (laughs) one, two of them, in fact, are at the front of the gallery. One is this really beautiful piece on loan to us by Joseph Gramacki, and it is easily Kamara's masterwork. The jug is huge. It's several gallons. It has this incredible grayish, whitish color, which is a testament to what a high grade of sand and how successfully it was fired. The glaze is really evenly applied. And in it, we're seeing both of the combinations of motifs that would become Comoros signature. We have the swags and tassels that you would see on high-style furniture, but we also see Kamra inverting those swags into a shape that looks akin to a clamshell or a bow knot. And it also has Kamra's stoneware wrapped around the neck, along with Corlier's hook and end york. It's just, it is astounding. Easily my favorite piece. Hmm. My second favorite piece actually it's kind of related to the last topic that i came to speak about because i've written about the index of american design it's this beautiful cylindrical piece from the new york historical society again beautiful gray color swags and tassels all along the top 
And for both of these pieces, you can see how carefully the cobalt blue was applied to each individual decorative motif and inside the lettering of all the different stamps that he's applying. It's such a testament to his skill, his command over his craft, and the pride that he would have taken in his work. Hmm. So that's two, and there's one more that you just couldn't leave out. I'm not going to lie, I thought of a fourth, but I'll leave I'll stick to three. <laughs> um, the third one is also from the New York Historical Society, and it's unique because it has all of Kamara's decorative motifs on the front. Usually, they're imposed on one side or the other in some sort of way, but you see Kamara's stoneware, Corlier's hook, and York all stacked on top of each other in a way that is just so striking to see it gathered in one place. It's also special because the tassels are filled with a little bit of manganese, so there's a little bit of purple to set this one apart. Mm. So those are my three, but it's tough. I could could keep picking them as long as we keep talking about him. So uh, (laughs) Yeah, we could go through all 22, I'm sure. But (laughs) uh, we'll we'll just have to let listeners go and see the show for themselves. (laughs) We'll be right back with Allison Robinson and more about Thomas Kamara, especially his devastating trip to Africa and the legacy of his work. But first, I want to let you know that you can get in touch by finding me on Instagram at Objective Interest or email at CuriousObjectsPodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear what you think about this episode or about the Kamara exhibition at New York Historical Society or an idea you have for a future episode. And if you like the podcast and you'd like to help us out, you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Those reviews are one of the most effective ways for us to reach new listeners, and more listeners means more opportunities to make the episodes that I hope you're enjoying. Actually, since I started working on Curious Objects, I've realized what a difference this actually makes, and I've made a habit of starting to rate the other podcasts I listen to and love. So really, thank you to all of you who are supporting the show in that way. I also want to thank this episode's sponsor, Old Hope which is a gallery I really adore. Uh, I look forward to their openings and their catalogs, and their connoisseurship is absolutely first-rate. And if you're listening to Curious Objects, chances are you too will find their shows and catalogs and inventory really compelling and enticing. After more than four decades in the antiques business, Old Hope remains a leading source for exceptional examples of American folk art and decorative arts. With an eye for design, color, condition, and the unique, Old Hope's inventory includes pieces from the 18th century to contemporary works that speak to the skill of the self-taught artist. American furniture retaining original painted finishes, weather vanes, folk paintings, early textiles such as hooked rugs and quilts, as well as distinctive accessories make up their extensive inventory. While maintaining a large showroom outside New Hope, Pennsylvania, The firm has expanded to include a location on the Upper East Side of Manhattan at 115 East 72nd Street with gallery hours Wednesday through Saturday and with appointments welcomed at both locations. Browse their website, oldhope.com, that's O-L-D-E-H-O-P-E.com, or visit one of their two locations 
and be delighted by the beauty of American folk art. Can we talk a bit about Thomas Kamara, the man? Um, you know, as I mentioned at the top of the program, it wasn't until 2010 that Brant Zipp found the census record that you mentioned um, identifying him as black. Um, what did people think about Kamara before that? What assumptions had they made? And, and why did that discovery come so late? Kamara's story is one that... I like to tell people he's very much hidden in plain sight. He left such a deep documentary record about his life. But part of the challenges of uncovering that record is that Kamara is really hard to spell. <laughs> um, <laughs> the gallery shows at least three different documents that completely misspell his name. The one that may have led researchers to believing that he is of French descent, spelled Camara with a U at the end, the 1795 directory record. There's, uh, I think, the 1797, yep, listing in, oh no, I think it might be in the 1800s, but there's a pottery directory listing of him where his name is Camerer with an E-R. Um, and by the time he's leaving for Sierra Leone in 1820, his last name is misspelled Cameron. There's at least 16 different ways that people have misspelled uh -huh. his name over the course of his lifetime. And so it was it was revelatory to find out that Kamara was in fact African American because it is so clear on the 1800 census record. It actually says, Thomas Kamara, with a slash mark, a black, very much apparent based off the documentary record. Exactly. But it would require so much time and manpower to comb through hundreds of thousands of newspaper articles and newspaper records, census records, to determine who he was based off of every possible misspelling that keeps mm. popping up in order to piece together his life. It is worth noting, Kamara never misspelled his own name. <laughs> oh, interesting. Because mm -hmm. I know, you know, many craftspeople, well, and other people of, of that era, you'll find them, you know, uh, varying their name from place to place and not caring too much about the, the particular spelling. But for Kamara, it was always consistent? Always consistent. You can see it across newspaper articles where he's making calls to the free Black community to participate in a variety of different activities and conversations. You see it in easily the most moving document in the entire uh, exhibition, which we can talk about in a little bit, a Certificate of Freedom, where we see Kamara's gorgeous handwriting uh hmm. and this is the only confirmed document with his signature on it it's astounding again spelling Kamara correctly and he's left all of these clues for us in the present about who he was as a person the political conversations that he cared about his business but because of a combination of the the ways that 
documentary records are dispersed and misspellings that it really took until the digital age and compiling a lot of this information in one place for this research to become possible. It's worthy of noting that scholars didn't even know his first name was Thomas until the 1940s. So how did he come to be a free man in New York, um, you know, decades before New York abolished slavery? And and not just a free man, but um, a literate, uh, accomplished man with a sophisticated trade. We know from the will of William Crolius of the Crolius Stoneware dynasty that Comoran gained his freedom along with his parents and his two sisters in 1799. We estimate he would have been born around 1771, which would have put him around the age of eight at the point of becoming, uh, or rather gaining his freedom. There's a lot of questions surrounding where he would have gotten his training, but we do know little pieces of his life, again, because of the records left behind. So by 1792, Kamara is married in a moment that I just find so touching. It's right at the start of our gallery. We have a little panel all about Kamara's early years. And after talking about him um, gaining his freedom, we present this record, it's a church record from Trinity Episcopal Church of Kamara and Mary Rowe getting married in um, 1792. This is really special because Mary only shows up in the documentary record twice, once at her marriage to Thomas and later when she passes away. And so we're just seeing these little flecks of him as mm. a human being, as a family man, also of note, his sister Venus gets married in the exact same church days later. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And so we're getting these little moments where we get to understand kind of the textures of his life. Most of the following documentary record that we highlight in the show is about his political activity. To summarize it, very briefly, um, in the early 1800s, to your point, Ben, about how slowly gradual emancipation went into effect in the United States, well, not in the United States, in New York State, rather, starting in 1799. At the same time, New York State is starting to pass a series of laws in the 1800s, making it easier to vote if you're of European descent and harder to vote if you're of African descent. Mm -hmm. the, gradual, the gradual emancipation laws are causing a growth in the free Black community in terms of population. And so free Black men, women cannot vote at this time, have to file something called a certificate of freedom in order to practice the right to vote. It involves um, a, what would have been a rather humiliating description of yourself uh, and it required having another person that you know write an attestation that they know that you are free and not enslaved. Thomas Comerall did this for a young man 
uh, named Peter Johnson in the 1810s. And it's, again, such a really beautiful reflection of how well he knows this young man. They've known each other for 16 years. They must have developed some sort of um, kinship or friendship over the course of their life for Kamara to not just sign this document, but he wrote a whole paragraph about how they know each other. And so it's a moment where we're seeing Kamara using his literacy. We don't know where he gained his literacy, but again, he has this beautiful, confident signature in handwriting that is certainly better than mine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But he has this beautiful handwriting that he's using, obviously, both to run his business, but to support political efforts of members of the free Black community as well. I'd encourage everyone to come see the document because lifting the sheet that we have over it to protect it from light really is just such a powerful moment that transports you to this moment in time when free Black people are trying to exercise political rights like voting, um, getting a house, getting a job, but all of these things are becoming increasingly difficult in this era. And uh, Kamara is doing his best to try to support communal efforts to band together and really flourish. Now, what is it that led Kamara to travel to Sierra Leone? And how did that go for him? That is probably the saddest moment in the exhibition. I mentioned that the War of 1812, I mentioned this in passing, that the War of 1812 was really economically devastating. It was devastating for New York City in general, um, but it was also particularly devastating for entrepreneurs and free Black entrepreneurs. At the same time that Kamara is doing all this political work, I should note that he actually published a rallying call in a free Black newspaper encouraging Black men to build a rampart in Brooklyn during the War of 1812 because Black people were barred from participating in the militia. It's a way of demonstrating support of the new nation. At the same time, Kamara is starting to suffer a series of financial setbacks that ultimately results in him losing his house, his property, everything down to his horse and cart by 1819. After this, at this point, his first wife has passed away. He's married again. He ends up mortgaging his property. I should note this is before he sold everything. He ends up mortgaging his property. It doesn't work. He, They both lose everything. This mm-hmm. is of note because it is, again, so striking to see a Black woman, while it is on a, a a document announcing an auction, listed as a plaintiff and a property owner alongside mm. her husband. Very powerful. Yeah. The two of them have lost everything, but they have three children that they need to take care of. And so they're really stuck between a rock and a hard place. We know from a letter written by Kamara's pastor at St. Stephen's Episcopal Church 
that he was interested in going to Sierra Leone with the American Colonization Society because he had aspirations of greatness, which you can see from his life in New York, he had a really prominent role in the free Black community. I don't think it's... I think we're seeing a lot of uh, his pastor's personal perspective in this letter, but it does give us insight that reflects back to his life in New York. He had a successful business. He played a prominent role in the community and perhaps moving to Sierra Leone with this first voyage funded by the American Colonization Society was an opportunity for a new life for him and his family. Hmm. So this would have been a decision that would have been challenging for Kamara and his family because colonization was a subject that was very much under debate by the free Black community all across the United States. The American Colonization Society was one that attempted to relocate free Black people from the United States to Africa as an effort to the word they use is repatriate them. But it's important to note that these would have been individuals who, for the most part, were born, raised, and lived their lives in the United States. The American Colonization Society had ties to Southern slaveholders, which left a lot of members of the free Black community either skeptical or distrustful of this organization and this movement. We have an image in the gallery at the New York Historical Society that really captures some of the more insidious undertones of this effort. But Kamra, as a man who lost everything, who had a family, and who needed to build a life for himself, ultimately opted to travel with the American Colonization Society as a group of 88 of the first emigrants to the colony. Sadly, the trip, it was 33 days long. It went just terribly. I can't even, terribly doesn't cover how far, uh, how 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 poorly this endeavor went um half of the emigrants contracted malaria after arriving on Sherborough island hmm. two of them were kamara's wife and his niece who passed away shortly afterwards the white agents who were in charge of this endeavor also caught malaria and passed away and so there's a lot of chaos because the emigrants also they don't have enough supplies to survive and they're not receiving the support that they need from the american colonization society to make it a success and so you can only imagine the the chaos and the fear that would have descended on these people who are far away from everything they know and everything they had known, and were just trying to seek a better life for themselves. Kamara sent back two letters about the experience. The first was published in 1820 after he arrives. It's very rosy and optimistic. He talks about how plentiful the land is. 
and all of the opportunities that everyone has, but it really takes a turn. By December 1821, we're seeing he's publishing another article about the absolute devastation on every possible level that has been experienced Mm. on this trip. He does make his way back to, I shouldn't say trip, I'm going to call it an endeavor. He makes his way back to the United States, to Baltimore in 1822, but we don't have evidence that he returned to the potter's wheel after doing so. His children did not become potters, and sadly, he passed away a year later in 1823. And so his life is one that was filled with so many obstacles from birth to death. But what is so admirable about his story is that you're seeing someone who is constantly fighting for himself and for others to try to do what's best to um, try to get the best life possible despite all of those just almost unimaginable hardships that he faced over the course of his lifetime. So how did his legacy survive after his death? And and when did, um, did scholars start to take notice of his work? We point out in the show that there are two ways that his legacy survives. The one that I am really the most excited about, I'm not going to say the most excited about, but I am really, really thrilled about it, is his descendants. And I'm so thrilled about it because um, we were able to track down his descendants, one of whom lives in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, Marty Hofer, my co-curator, tracked this man down and he was so thrilled to talk to us all about his family and how they lived in Massachusetts and Florida, how his father would pursue um, a master's degree in education and became an advocate to fight segregation in 1930s and 1940s Florida. And so through his descendants, we're really seeing this tradition of education, entrepreneurship, and advocacy advocacy continuing today, which is so powerful. Some of his descendants also came to the opening in January, which was so delightful. They're such wonderful people. Hi, everyone. I hope you listen to this, <laughs> this episode. Kamra is also celebrated today for being such an innovative stoneware craftsman. To see his work drawing so heavily on federal style motifs as a way to set himself apart, as a way to attract new customers is so powerful. And it speaks to how innovative and observant and creative this man was when he was working as an entrepreneur working to compete against families that had been doing this for generations. Scholars, and I should also say collectors, museum professionals started gaining an interest in him in the early 1900s 
as part of a larger effort to collect American stoneware. And of course, if you're seeing these pieces that are just so different from everything else, down to the fact that he is the only one using a possessive in his business name on his stoneware, comma Raw's stoneware, mm. it it just drags you in. It just makes you want to collect his work. Yeah. And from, and... I'm, Sorry, was, go ahead. No, I was just uh, going to say, and from there, we're seeing, again, little pieces of information slowly trickle in. No one knew that he was African-American. Everyone assumed that he was of European descent. They discovered, working at the Index of American Design, the branch in New York City, that his name was Thomas. It's fascinating seeing someone go back into the documentary record and handwrite Thomas over a printed document when they figured out what his name was. Mm. And it wasn't until Brant Zipp shared his discovery in 2010 that we learned that this story was even bigger than we could have possibly imagined. And so, again, Kamara, he is so prominent in the free Black community. It really highlights the fact that we as a decorative arts community, as a scholarly community, can't jump to conclusions about someone's background or their identity because sometimes we just have to keep digging and we'll uncover a story that's even more exciting and complex than we could have possibly imagined. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fantastic story after the story, um, the story of discovery and investigation. Um, and, and his work has been shown and, and published before and, and particularly with interest since um, since 2010. But this exhibition is the first single artist camera exhibition. Um, I'm wondering how that came to be. How did this exhibition come about? Camera has been celebrated and shown for a long time, um, along with other stoneware craftsmen, but I uh, I really want to give a, a strong nod to Margie Hofer, my co-curator, who has been excited about this show for over a decade. When she learned that Kamara was of African descent when Brancet made his discovery, she recognized that we we have five Kamara pieces in the collection. We have one of the largest Kamara holdings in a public institution in the country. Mm. And so this was a real opportunity to share this New York story in New York's first museum. And so this show has been in the works truly for 13 years. Um, but then Margie started uh, working on the show she eventually connected with Mark Shapiro, our co-curator, and I joined, joined as co-curator in 2001 when I became a postdoc at the New York Historical Society. And it was so exciting to see Margie's expertise in decorative arts coming together with Mark's expertise on the life of Kamara. I got to contribute my own information about uh, the free black community since I'm a trained historian and bring all three of these things together to 
highlight what an important figure is, figure Kamara is for all sorts of reasons, both in the history of the free black community, New York City, stoneware pottery, uh, transatlantic movement, that uh, it really blossomed into a show that I think is really textured and exciting. And I hope people get a lot out of it. So you've alluded to some uh, objects in the exhibition that aren't uh, camera pots uh, or jugs. Um, what other material have you included and, and why? We have a couple of different types of material that we've included to really help flesh out the world that Kamara lived in and the life that he led within that world. We have this really beautiful central wall that is highlighting all of Kamara's decorative motifs over the course of his lifetime. And I love bringing that up because it it's decorated with all of those same decorative motifs and it's it's stunning. We've also included a lot of documents from our collection, as well as reproductions to both show the historian's job of piecing together a person's life through little documentary snippets and snapshots, but also to demonstrate how rich of a documentary record Kamra left behind. So I love pointing out, for instance, that his first appearance in a city directory is a document we drew from our collection. That certificate of freedom that I discussed earlier, also coming from our collection. The 1809 celebration pamphlet at Zion Church, also from New York Historical Society. And so it's really beautiful to think as a curator and as a historian about all of these little pieces of his life that have been accruing in our library for, I mean, we've been open for two centuries, we've been accruing for a long time, just waiting for someone to bring it all together along with his vessels. We also have this gorgeous black back wall uh, showing Kamara's works on the left along with his competitors on the right. So you really get a sense for how Kamara is setting himself apart from his competitors with these just really striking decorative approaches. They just pop right out at you when you can better understand the context of the stoneware industry in New York and New Jersey at the time that he's working. And finally, we have these other pieces of contextual material, both from our own collection and others that help you understand what the free Black community was like at large. We have a section all about the creative, entrepreneurial, and political work happening uh, before and after Kamara's time. So you get a sense for all the conversations that are happening. And we have um, a few pieces related to the colonization movement uh, that help really capture in a visual what the what the mission of the American Colonization Society was and why the free black community would have ended up having 
such a debate over the advantages of of moving to places like uh, Sierra Leone versus staying in the United States and continuing to build the community at home. So we have a lot about Kamara's life. We have a lot of contextual pieces and together it really flushes out um, a really, a story that I find quite moving. How would you say all of this um, deep scholarship about Kamara has changed our broader understanding about 19th century American decorative arts? Big question. <laughs> I would repeat my earlier comment that I made simply because I think it's worth really highlighting. When it comes to decorative arts of any century or 19th century in particular, it's challenging for all of us to conduct that documentary research and really build those that, those rich backstories for the people whose work we're collecting. But that work that we're doing is so important for fleshing out the diversity of people participating in the decorative arts, for understanding the huge range in lives that they lived and opportunities that they had and challenges that they faced based off of who they were and the political context in which they lived. I think there's a really rich history in the case of that Kamara shows us of African-American participation in the decorative arts that we are thanks to a lot of different scholars starting to appreciate in a way that I think is significant. And I hope it gets people excited to keep digging and keep doing research because there's just infinite surprises out there waiting for us. And it's really encouraging to think about how eye-opening new discoveries are when they're shared with the broader public so we can all learn and build off that research and come up with new and important innovations all together. So what comes next for the exhibition and, and for uh, work on Kamara? So in terms of what's next for Kamara, we are so pleased that the show will start traveling after its conclusion at New York Historical on May 27th. So if visitors don't have an opportunity to come to New York City, the next stop is the Fenimore Art Museum. There will be an opportunity there. We also are so pleased that Ceramics in America will be releasing a suite of articles all about Kamara, his work, and the context that he lived in. Following the close of the show, so conversations can continue and continue to grow course, Brant Zipp's book is out. And so uh, that's another space to learn more about Kamara's life. And of course, we always encourage people to keep digging into this man's life, because we want to learn more too. So there are more opportunities to 
learn more about Kamara, both through text and through the show, but also for all the listeners, if you learn new things about Kamara, please share it with uh, with the museum world because we are very excited about this man. Well, Allison Robinson, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Ben. I always enjoy coming onto your podcast to talk about decorative arts, and I really appreciate the invitation. We'll have to do it again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati with social media and web support by Sarah Bellata. Sierra Holt is our digital media and editorial associate, and our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller. 